0: Hi, I'm Dave, and uh, thanks for joining us on the I'm Glad I Heard That podcast. Um, today, if you like what you see on the YouTubes, I'm going to ask that at the end of this that you would uh, smash that like button, and also feel free to subscribe. And then if you really enjoy what you hear today, the long-form version of this conversation is going to be available on our podcast platform, Apple, Spotify, any place where you find your um, podcast at, and just look for the I'm Glad I Heard That Today uh, joining me is Andrew Collins. Um, He is gonna be speaking at our base camp event tonight. So we were able to get together a little bit before that and uh, take time to hear his story and uh, talk with him. So Andrew, first of all, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, and uh, I'm very excited for you to, to share a little bit about your story. But before we uh, get into that, one of the things, especially since I don't know you and everyone watching this probably doesn't know you, uh, talk a little bit about um, how you grew up, what your childhood was like, where were you at, different yeah. things like that. Yeah, so I grew up in a house of
1: domestic violence. Um, uh, from, from the most early memories that I have, uh, there was just tension in the house all the time. So mom and dad, so first off, mom had me when she was 15 years old. Uh, so I kind of grew up with her. I remember being at her 21st birthday party and (laughs) serving drinks. And my dad taught me how to suck the foam off of the beer because the guys that I was delivering it to didn't like the foam. So
0: at age six, at age
1: six. Yeah. So a bit of a rough upbringing, um, had, uh, mom and dad, uh, where I lived, but then had grandma and grandpa who lived right next door. So there was like this. Uh, kind of this haven that I would go to, uh, where Grandma and Grandpa were at. My mom loved me to death and loved my little brother, and um, but it was just she was growing up uh, with mm-hmm. us. So, so they would go out on a Friday night, and uh, something would happen while they were out, and when they would come home, uh, most weekends it would turn violent. So, start with name calling, and you know, screaming and hollering, waking us up, and. You know, I would always go out and see if there was something I could help with, you know, like, hey guys, can you please stop? And, you know, my dad would usually then turn the anger towards me. And, you know, at the time I'm, you know, between six and nine years old, depending on what weekend it was, right? And uh, so he was a pretty terrifying figure in in my life. Uh, I didn't like him very much. was he,
0: was he roughing you up or was he just, you know, you could just feel the anger seething and that kind of intimidation? Was it physical?
1: No, it was more, uh, much more emotional. Yeah. Yeah, just didn't feel wanted. Uh, I found out later in life that he wasn't my real dad, um, which kudos to him for like taking on a, another son. Uh, but it also was very clear that uh, I, I was not the one he wanted. There was, there was one fight where... I remember him and mom arguing in my little brother's room. He's five years younger than me, and um, it's getting pretty heated, and my dad had his finger in her face yelling at her, and she said, why don't you just leave? You clearly don't want to be here. And he said, I'll take my my little brother. He said, I'll take my son. You take that one. And he pointed at me, and I was that one, Mm -hmm. you know. So, uh, you know, dealt with some uh, kind of fatherless issues, even though I had a father in the home. Um, still just never felt really wanted and had some wounds from that that still, uh, you know, almost into my 40s trying to figure out yeah. how to walk through that. So one particular night, uh, it got out of hand with their with her fighting and uh, the cops got called. And uh, that was the first time uh, that I can remember wanting to be a police officer and being just really uh, taken back with um, just the presence of peace that they brought into my house. So my dad, like I said, in my mind was a monster Um, and this guy walks in, this officer walks in and he wasn't aggressive and he wasn't mean towards my dad, but just his presence brought peace and he took us out of the house that night and my mom didn't press charges and the guy just took us to to a friend's house and he let me play with the lights and the sirens and, you know, did everything that a good officer would do in that situation, right? Like eased my fears and from that point on uh, in the backyard playing cops and robbers i was always the cop (laughs) Uh, when anybody ever asked in high school what are you going to do i'm going to be a police officer never wavered Uh, and and that's really what propelled me into
0: uh, what became my career okay and when you're in um, high school are you like doing like an explorers program or anything to kind of get around the law enforcement? You know, because you got to figure out how do you get to the academy. Are you going to okay. have to pay for it? Are you going to get into a for, you know a department that's going to pay for you? you do yeah. dispatch before all that stuff? Were you kind of trying to figure that out at that time too, or were you just like, I'm going to be a cop and I'll deal with it when I'm eighteen? Right. No, I was a I was a police officer by the time I had heard about explorer program. So <laughs>
1: I'm from uh, Fountain, Michigan. Okay. Never Uh, heard of it. Village of a hundred people. Uh, village. When I moved away, my grandpa said the village lost their idiot. So, uh, he's a, he's a jokester. So Uh. yeah. So, um, yeah, there was nothing like that. Uh, we had a community college nearby about 12 miles from my house and they had a great law enforcement program. Uh, so I just always knew that that was the path straight out of high school to the community college, could live at home, could go to college, Two year program, you get your associate's degree in criminal justice. Yep. And then I got a one year certificate in corrections. And yeah, so I, I graduated in 2003, uh, 21 years old, and ready, ready to go change the world.
0: So in high school, well, let's just back up for a yeah. minute. Are you uh, making not great decisions, mildly okay decisions? Are you a party guy? Or are you, um, you know, I'm just, I'm going to be a cop and, you know, yeah. all that? Like, I was pretty straight edge. Uh, my grandparents uh, were also our youth pastors.
1: So I grew up in the church uh, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Um, and really, really loved loved that atmosphere. I loved my youth group. I loved being a part of it. Uh, I never doubted any of the stories that I heard in the Bible. Yeah. You know, just always believed that Jesus died for my sins. And I was grateful because I knew there was a lot of them. And uh, <laughs> I think I always just struggled with like his lordship. You hear people talk about Jesus as my Lord and Savior, and it's so easy to just roll off the tongue and say that. Yeah. But He wasn't the Lord of my sexuality. You know, He wasn't the Lord of if I was going to party or not. So, you know, I, I messed around as a ninth grader with alcohol and never really got into the weed scene or anything like that. You know, just kind of alcohol was my deal. And then uh, probably from mid ninth grade all the way through my senior year, I never touched a drop and uh, mm-hmm. was really pretty straight edge. So. Uh, but there was some other stuff too. I had uh, low self-esteem, uh, and that yeah. yeah, that ended up coming out as uh, a bully towards people. You know, so I look back now uh, and say, man, there was there was so many places where yeah, like kudos to you for not drinking in high
0: school, right? A beha- you did a good behavior, right. but you're dealing with all the same things that. So many people in the yeah. adolescence are navigating. That's right, yeah. Right? Yeah. So
1: then my senior year, had a breakup with a girlfriend, and then just went full party mode at that point. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Wheels off. Yep, yep. So and that was probably right around 18 years old through 23 years old. It was five years of binge drinking and partying and waking up, not knowing how I got places. Yeah. And still, though, I can remember in college, at a fire, arguing with somebody about how good God is. Uh, drunk out of my mind, stumbling back, stumbling back to my car to grab my Bible
0: to show him this one
1: verse. Oh.
0: So, oh my gosh, yeah, that's that's so great. Yeah, mm-hmm. you're like, I know the truth. That's right. right? Like, that's yeah, right. So. I was a mess. So. Yeah. And so in 21, were you able to get a full time? career as a police officer? Did you start at 21? Yeah, I did. So uh, the year that I graduated,
1: um, all of Michigan was in a hiring freeze for for police. So it was like, way to go. You know. Yeah. So uh, I applied to 90 different, or I sent my resume to 90 different departments. And then um, I started, I, I had like Traverse City, and Ludington, which is by where I'm from, and then uh, I think Cadillac. Those were three that I picked out that I said, I would love to work for those spots. And then I just started in the A's, and I started going, counting up alphabetically and just sending a resume to every one of them that I could. And I guess Benton Harbor was in there because one day I got a call. I had about a month left uh, in school, and I got a call saying, hey, this is you know, Sergeant so-and-so from Benton Harbor. would love for you to come down and test. And I said, okay, where's Benton Harbor at? You know, I like, had no clue that I'd even sent in a resume to them. And uh, <laughs> so I went down to do the testing, did really well on that. And then uh, had a couple of interviews and, and got hired at 21 years old. So... Graduated in May of 2003 and was supposed to start June of 2003, uh, but there was a riot in Benton Harbor uh, It was actually the day I was supposed to start uh, there was uh, Houses on fire and squad cars flipped and oh wow I remember my mom calling me. I was at a friend's house hungover and uh, my mom called me and said Hey, you need to turn on the news They're talking about Benton Harbor. And I said mom we live in Podunkville like anything makes the news, you know, so I hang up and an hour later she calls back she goes, okay It's on CNN now so I was like, all right. So I yeah, go out to my buddy's uh, living room, flip it on, and there's the helicopter footage, you know. And oh, wow! so I called the sergeant and I'm like, hey, it looks like you guys need some help, I'm ready. You want me down there today? What so, an eager beaver. Yeah, yeah. So they pushed out,
0: uh, 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 hired me for about a month, so. And just right there, one of the things that I heard that I think is just really helpful, it's like the amount of hustle you were placing on getting a job mm-hmm. to, you know, you're you're looking up counties alphabetically and then sending off you know 90 different resumes. You know that's um, I think that's just a good reminder for us that like hey, when you want something, there's always mm. things you can do to try. That's right. To make it happen, and you know that that's a it's a great thing. And so, so the people who call you're like, who are you? Yeah. <laughs> like that's just that's so great, you know and. So then you go over to Benton Harbor. Um, so you're from a town of a hundred. You're from Benton Harbor, which is what? Maytag or Whirlpools? Whirlpools, goals Headquarters, right, yep. headquarters. Um, and it's like probably like we would deal with in our area, Pontiac, Flint, Detroit, mm-hmm. right? It's a, a city where a lot of the industry left, right? Right. And so I was just driving through Benton Harbor last weekend, and um, I was doing a wedding over there. I was driving around and going, "Oh yeah, this is just, this is just like so many other environments mm-hmm. that have been abandoned yep. that I'm used to." And yeah, so it's a lot smaller than what you guys have over here, but sure, yeah. but but kind of the same, same economics, yeah. Yep. And um, so as a 21-year-old kid who walks into that, where is it like? you know what was your experience starting off driving around going oh wow
1: yeah so when i went down on my interviews definitely like economically You drive through and you would see that this is this is just a beat-up city, you know old warehouses Abandoned houses that are burnt out, you know um, You know kids kids playing all over the place that it just doesn't look like there's much super supervision So you can just see like it was much different than how I grew up and then uh, You know racially looking at it, you know, I grew up in lily white America and uh, we played basketball in high school against Baldwin, uh, which was my only interaction with people uh, who were black or brown. The, the only interaction with people who weren't brought up like I was brought up. Okay. And, uh, and then obviously my heroes on the Chicago Bulls in the 90s. Like yeah, that, you know, that's, yeah. That's, that's my right. interaction with black people, right? So now all of a sudden I am planted into a city that is 90 plus percent African American, okay. and I have no Uh, historical education on the rift between black and brown communities and white police officers so I'm just told go and enforce the law and uh, I did exactly that Um, I was a very aggressive officer and uh, my favorite thing to do is just pull up on a crowd of people as fast as I could and jump out of my car and if somebody took off running it meant they were doing something wrong and that was my tactic uh at twenty one years old. I unleash me on the city. Yep. and let me protect and
0: serve. So <laughs> Right, and you know, you're coming from this at, you know, you wanna help enforce the law. You wanna be this guy who hopes to bring peace or whatever. Meanwhile it's like no community policing no relationships no you know no taking time to you know seek to understand before Mm -hmm. trying to be understood like all those things that make successful policing happen you're not doing any of those right get the job done and um and then also like how much that furthers this, this just this complicated relationship and this bad narrative of you know cops are just looking to shake people down right right you know so and i mean we're talking about this in
1: 2021 This was 18 years ago in 2003, right? Like these conversations weren't happening. It was two years after 9/11, so it was it was it was the best time in in the world to be a police officer. Everybody wanted to buy a meal for you. You know, we we were very high on policing because we had watched. Yeah, we had watched the sacrifice of the thousands of men and women who who did what they did, and uh, and I took advantage of all of it. You know, there was there was very little um, supervision of me, you know, six months in, you know, I'm 21 years and six months old. Now I'm training people uh, who came in behind me, you know, and I look at that now and I was like at the time I was bragging to my grandma, like, look how great I'm doing. I'm training
0: people. And I look at it now and I'm like, man, I just didn't have anybody. You know, they were trying to grow. So their I, I got a bunch of bad habits and bad ways of policing. And now I'm, I get to teach that to someone That's else. right. Yeah. Let, let's let's just pass yeah. this down. You and I know? think it's funny,
1: too, that yeah. I thought I wanted to get into policing to help bring peace. Right. That was the driving force was that officer brought peace to me that night. Yet what I was doing uh, was creating chaos in the city. I would drive in from St. Joe across the bridge. Yep. 90 uh, percent. Caucasian, yeah, affluent. Uh, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, affluent, right. you know, and I'd drive across a one-mile bridge to come into poor, poverty-stricken, black Benton Harbor, and I would create chaos for 12 hours, and then I'd drive back across a bridge and, and take my time off, right? So I got my start wanting to bring peace, but really uh, I made a name for myself for creating
0: chaos. Yeah. And in this... Let me go get my Bible and show you what God's <laughs> right, right? Like you know that that's happening, you know. Yeah, I remember going to a Promise
1: Keepers event when I was probably 20. It was probably a year before I became a police officer, and uh, they gave me um, a little nail that had uh, Galatians 2:20 written on it, okay. it as for I have been crucified with Christ, I no longer live, but He lives in me. And I was really impacted by that weekend. And was like, okay, I haven't been living my life right. I'm turning it all around, you know. And
0: I wore the necklace. And I was, probably... by the way, did it have a leather strap on the nail? It did. Okay, yeah, that's a throwback you had the to same 1998. One? Oh, yeah. of course, I, I was a Christian. <laughs> yeah, I had to. I was a Christian so. and a man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I had a leather strap with a nail with a spiral piece of baling wire to hold the nail. That's on. it. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. the one. Yep, yep. So, but I remember.
1: Um, I can't tell you how far I was into my career, but I remember that I took it off. Because I felt like I remember when I put this thing on, I said I was going to start living my life differently, and it felt like like obviously it wasn't physically searing my flesh when I wore it, but that's what it felt like was like I don't deserve to wear this thing. I'm not in the right spot right now, but I don't want to change my ways. Yeah, I'm the Lord of my life, right? You know, I don't need anybody else to step in and be Lord. So uh, that's
0: really you know I remember taking that off and probably one of the more honest things you did in your absolutely. life at that point it's like well at least i'm making yeah. this distinction clear yeah yeah okay and so you're out you know policing um by the way did you ever in those situations get a chance to be the guy who brought peace you ever roll up on a domestic oh, and absolutely. actually help people out and calm absolutely. the kids down
1: yeah Um uh, at the very beginning of my career and then at the very end of my career so the very beginning was all about learning, seeing other officers, you know, they put you with three different officers during three different months and, mm-hmm. and they tell you, like pick up the good habits that you see, drop the bad habits that you don't like, and mm-hmm. you, know, you don't have to be that officer, become your own officer. And there were several domestics that we went through or that we went to that I remember like feeling that moment of this is what I've been thinking about for all these years. This is the reason yeah. that I'm doing this. And being able to restore peace in a household. And especially when there was kids involved. And and being able to sit with them and chat with them and to get them to calm down. And that they would see, like, oh, you're here, so I'm okay. So it was definitely some redeemable moments. Yep. It wasn't all
0: bad. Right. Nothing uh, ever is. Right. Yeah. yeah. You know? so,
1: so two years into my job, I ended up uh, becoming a narcotics detective. So my sole focus was finding drug dealers. And that's... I don't think there was there was many moments in there i would have told you back then that i was bringing peace to the city by you know ridding of, of all of its drugs you know uh that's cute how, yeah right <laughs> how much
0: difference i was making is debatable so mm-hmm. and so you, so you get into the narcotics world and, and I gotta imagine, so you're performing well as a cop, so then they give you more opportunities to see if you wanna take another step. Narcotics is pretty sexy, right? You oh, know? Oh, absolutely. You know, kicking remember, in doors, yeah. that kind of thing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, I remember
1: cool. running down the the numbers for my chief, and I said, I'm taking calls just like everybody else, and I'm doing this narcotics stuff on the side, and I have civilly forfeited $40,000 this year. So that means I've paid for my position. Yep. Uh, so imagine what I could do if I was only doing narcotics work. And he was the captain at the time when I made that plea. The the chief at that time said, no, we're not ready for that yet. And then when he moved on and then the captain became the chief, he, he uh, promoted me into that role.
0: Again, so I'm hearing, you know, you know how to market yourself, you know how to explain, you know, just like sending out the 90 resumes and so forth. So you pretty much, have you always been wired up as a guy who says, hey, this is what I want, I'm gonna go get it? Yeah, and then mixed with that is I'm slightly charming. So, yes. and
1: and it's funny because God gifted me with that for, for right. whatever reason. Uh, but then Satan takes our giftings, and man, you just turn it one Goodness. degree, right? And <laughs> I am charming, and I can become your best friend. And I usually I'm authentic with that. I really want to get to know you. I really mm-hmm. want to know your story. But then I'm like, oh, I could get this from you now, right? And it's. It's still a tick that I have that I have to say to myself why whoa, where did that come from? Why mm-hmm. did you know why, why did that happen? Why did I just have that thought? I better check that at the door Hey, God, what's that all about? You know because that's still in me, you know I'm oh. years beyond
0: uh, all this stuff happening Well, right? I think that's probably part of that maturity that is happening in You you're, you're you're probably stopping playing this game where where you say I got this and you know that in you mm-hmm. this is lurking and, and I think that's what most it, most people, when you start to grow up and you mature, you realize it's like, I, I, I can go pretty dark yeah. if I need to. Yeah, I'm capable you know? of some pretty bad stuff still. Right? Oh, yeah. you know like once oh, we yeah. say we've arrived that's probably <laughs> the scariest <spot. laughs> right start backing away from that person because <laughs> that's, that, right. that's gonna be a, a messy ride that's so right. you get into the narcotics world you're kicking indoors you're, you're you're producing for the city you're taking bad guys off the street bad guys and girls you're you're putting money into the uh, the fund all those great things and what happens
1: yeah so when I started that role I said there's two things that I'll never do I'll never steal money and I'll never plant drugs. Okay. So 23-year-old Andrew said those are, because what's, what I found out was that that area, Berrien County, Michigan, uh, Benton Harbor has been riddled with dirty cops. And it was actually, I was probably a year and a half or so into my career that I realized that we had talked about Benton Harbor in the academy. Right towards the end of the academy. Kind of like the what not to do stuff? Our director said, hey guys, you're about to throw out all these resumes just because a department picks you doesn't mean you have to pick them. There's this department called Benton Harbor that back in the 90s, you know, there was all these cases of these officers doing bad things. Didn't
0: they like decommission that police department and bring in the state police for a They've while?
1: They've done that a few times, yeah.
0: Ooh, yeah. yeah. Just to so, clean it out. That's right. Yeah. So I said, these are the things I'll
1: never do. I'll never steal and I'll never plant drugs. And uh, man, within. You know, two short years, I was taking money out of drug dealers' pockets, throwing it at my own, and I was stealing money from the city of Benton Harbor. I was entrusted with drug money, you know, to buy drugs and to try to enforce the law. So,
0: Were you doing anything cool with the money or just stupid
1: stuff? <sighs> I mean, yeah, just... Um, you didn't get I, a boat or anything? <laughs> no. Okay. No, the FBI asked me at one point <laughs> in my life if I had offshore accounts, and... I said, you guys are so far off on <laughs> really? the magnitude of this. this. This is not where this was going. You're so. like,
0: I bought stuff on, from Walmart, not on sale. No. That's why I splurged. Yeah, okay. yeah.
1: so I, uh, you know, I was, as of February 2008, I was no longer a police officer and within a month I was broke. So the mm-hmm. money was being spent as soon as the money was yeah. being made. So money, money finds a way to be spent. Absolutely. So I still, I mean, I haven't been a police officer since 2008. I was making sixty grand a year working overtime. That was not the money I was stealing, legally making sixty grand a year i you know I'm what thirteen years from that, I still don't make that kind of money. yet we have money in the savings account we you know there's you know we've learned from losing mm-hmm. everything, you know so I think we bought a deck was probably the coolest thing that I bought was I built a deck with drug money okay, so and then that house got foreclosed on mm-hmm.
0: because I blew up our lives so. Yeah. And um, so you start you start stealing, you start um, doing that thing. and then were you married at this time? I was, yeah, so I Are you was, still married to this woman?
1: I am yeah okay. yeah she's a, she's a good one. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it, it has been rocky. We've been married 16 years in July, and I'd have to ask her how many of those have been happily married. Mm-hmm. so
0: i've I've put her through a lot, yeah, so. And you said the FBI were involved, so let's talk about. Um, so you, you you got caught. How that happened?
1: Yeah. So February 2008, I got caught with crack heroin and marijuana in my office, and uh, that's that is frowned upon. <laughs> you can't you can't do that. I found out, and uh, and that was the beginning of the end for me. So uh, the captain at the time had uh, he had quite a few complaints that I was doing dirty stuff so uh, we we did a search warrant that morning and when i came back from the search warrant he pulled me in his office and said hey i'm getting too many complaints we're taking you out of narcotics and i remember feeling relieved i had talked to my wife about stepping away from narcotics because i felt this pressure that really i was the only one putting that pressure on myself that that You could only go so high as far as like the big drug dealers, you know, in a city that small. And I kind of gotten there and, and it had become so much about lying in my own pockets and this ego driven, you know, the bigger bus I got, the more people said, look at you, you know. And so I was just tired of it. And probably six months before this happened, I had been pulled out of narcotics because of some stuff that I had been doing an investigation that they were doing. So they put me back on the road and I solved a stolen purse. And it was like I had so much joy. Uh, It was two women at a doctor's office and the one woman stole the other woman's purse. And um, so so the one woman came in and, and made the complaint. And usually we would just say, okay, And then you file the report, you close it and that's it. But I went back to the place, I talked to the people working there, found out who the other girl was, went to her house, and some of the interrogation stuff that I had learned through narcotics. I, I talked my way to get the purse back. And it took me four hours. And the guys that I'm working with are like, What are you doing, man? Get back out here. We're busy, you know? And I'm like, ah, I'm still working this case. So I ended up uh, able to call that woman and say, Hey, I got your purse back. And like seeing her joy, I was like, Man, this is why I became a cop. Oh, yeah, you know? Like, so I could do stuff like this. So then when he told me, you know, so fast forward six months, I was reinstated as a narcotics officer, started doing dirty stuff again. So now, you know, in February, 08, he tells me I'm taking out of narcotics. I was like, all right, back to being a good cop again. You know, I can't, I can't dig myself out of this hole. I've tried several times and I keep finding opportunity to steal from people. So maybe this is what needed to happen. And then he said, and we're going to search your office. And I was like, well, that sucks. (laughs) Because <laughs> there's a uh, Crown Royal bag inside of a safe. And in that Crown Royal bag has a half ounce of crack, an ounce of weed, and some heroin. Hmm. You know, and two months ago, it had five grand in there. You know, like, like this is my spot. That's where I keep stuff. So he went down and he searched my office. And, you know, after a very dramatic uh, moment where I could have flushed the drugs, uh, I just hit them in a wastebasket. And... uh he, yeah, he called him the drug dog, retracted retract my path, and, and found the drugs, and that was the last day I was a police officer. Did the whole, give me your gun and your badge, yep. we'll give you a ride home, and, uh, and that was it. The officers, uh, some of my best friends, uh, that was the last day I talked to him. I still have not spoke to them, some of them. Yep. Uh, because they were told,
0: if you, uh, if you like your career, I would Stay advise away. you not to talk to him right Stay now. Stay away. Yep. So, yeah, you're glowing. You know, right now? You're, you're yeah. going nuclear and you're glowing. And um, so one of the people, Jamal, you, um, explain what happened with him. You falsified a report on him? Yeah, so that
1: was um, February of 2006, So two years before me getting caught, I ended up um, catching somebody with some drugs. And then uh, they said that they would order up more drugs so that they could go home that day. And they made a phone call to a dealer named Ox. And i had heard ox before heard the name i knew that the fbi wanted him and that was i was really growing my name as an aggressive officer at that time so I'm like man if i can get ox this is going to be a notch in my belt right so he makes the phone call i listen to it they set up the deal he says he's going to be in a um, durango at this liquor store so he calls says hey we're here where you at so i bust over there real quick and i find the durango and there's a guy in the passenger seat and it's not Ox, cause I don't know Ox personally, but this guy had like uh, cerebral palsy. So he had some issues with his legs. And I was like, well, I know Ox doesn't have issues with his legs. And then this guy comes out of the store and starts coming, walking towards the Durango. And I'm like, well, there he is. And I was playing close. So, so I walk up to him, I pull my badge out. and I said, you know, I'm off duty or I'm a undercover officer. Give me the dope. And he said, man, screw you. Uh, he said other words, but uh, yeah. And I said, man, give me the dope. He said, I don't know what you're talking about. So I pat him down, he doesn't have anything, I go back to the vehicle, search the vehicle, and I find an ounce of crack cocaine in the center council. So I, I said, I got him, I got Ox. So I walk back over to him, I kind of dangle it in front of him, he's in the back of the squad car, and I say, you know, gotcha. He tells, you know, tells me off again, I said, what's your name? Now he's not speaking. I said, okay, you don't have to speak to me, I'll lodge you. So I lodge Ox, you know. And then two days later, I get a, so I wrote the report and said that when I pulled up, I saw Ox sitting in the driver's seat and, which was a lie. And, and when I pulled up, I saw him make a furtive gesture towards the center counsel. I saw him lean over towards the center counsel. And that's where I found the drugs. So I'm connecting the dots for people. Like the jury doesn't have to work too hard. The judge doesn't have to work too hard. We got him. Ox is going away. Except for two days later, I get a call from the FBI saying, hey, you didn't get Ox, you got Zuki that's that's ox's cousin I don't know, his real name's jamel mcgee and i said uh well shoot well whoever the guy is i said i saw him plant the dope so i can't i can't go back on that mm-hmm. so i guess zuki's got to go down for it so bummer that we didn't get ox but we got zuki so jamel's sitting in jail thinking well this is gonna this is gonna work itself out they, they lodged me as this one name that's my cousin but Two days from now, when my fingerprints come back, they'll find out it's a mistaken identity. Well, and instead, what he gets is a supplemental report saying, yeah, I, I said Ox, but I really meant Zuki. I was confused by the street names. And we, he took it to trial. And I went to trial, and I lied in federal court, uh, in front of the judge, in front of the prosecutor, in front of the jury, said that I saw Jamel you know, make that furtive gesture, and they found him guilty. And uh, 10 years in prison is what he got. Okay. So... You-
0: So you intentionally ruin another man's life.
1: Yeah, I mean, I was convinced on that day that he was guilty, right? I didn't think this is some innocent guy. I didn't jump out of the bushes and throw some crack in his pocket. Not that that sounds like it's justifying, uh, but I was convinced that this man was guilty and it was my job to make sure that he got what was coming to him. So I intentionally, absolutely, intentionally lied. You know, I'd forgotten about him, who he was. I remember the case because it was an ounce of crack. That was a pretty big deal for me. and uh, But I had to, like, review the report and remind myself what I was supposed to say on the stand uh, because uh, I had moved on and, and started doing other, you know, busts by the time we went to trial. So, yeah, so Jamel ended up with a 10-year federal prison sentence. Okay.
0: And so when you—so um, life catches up with you. Yeah. You know they search your office you're done being a cop now you have to go to trial right um why why do you have to go to trial
1: yeah so i got caught in february um no charges Uh, i wasn't charged that day they sent me home and then the state police showed up at one point asking if i wanted to give a statement i told them no and the one officer who i had partied with quite a bit winked at me and nodded his head like yep you don't want to talk to me it was very clear to me that the signal being sent was we have to come here and ask this question but -hmm. we're glad that you're not saying anything um i think for them they were my friends and they didn't want to be the ones to to have to write that report right so then in august of that year so february i get caught august uh, i have friends reach out to me and say hey grand jury subpoenas just came out uh you're you're gonna get indicted so at that point um you know i'd had this come back to jesus uh, moment. So back in February, caught on a Tuesday. Thought about killing myself on Wednesday. Yeah. And was like, there's just no way I can pick myself out of this. Uh, you know, my daughter's two years old, has no clue what I just did to our family. My wife is confused. Like, you, you were the top cop in the county. Now you're talking about possible prosecution. How does this even happen? You know, and the whole time I'm telling her, oh, it's just a, it's a misunderstanding. mistake, it's a misunderstanding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had some drugs in my office. It was, it was a report I should have finished and I didn't. Yeah. You know, yeah. they're picking on me. I'm the victim, blah, blah, blah. Right,
0: yeah, yeah. So
1: then that's day two, I think, about suicide. And my wife came home from work, and she's like, eh, you just don't look right. You need to call that pastor. Because I had been kind of dabbling with church as an adult and wanted my daughter to grow up in a youth group like I did. And yeah. So I went and talked to the pastor on day three and kind of just spilled my guts to him and and it felt so good to get all that stuff out of me if you've ever confessed you've probably never done anything wrong but if you've ever confessed anything you know it just feels so good Mm -hmm. it's a huge weight just lifted and i I remember sitting in his office just feeling like oh my gosh i needed to say that for so long and almost like i got a little bit of me back Hmm. when i invited somebody in i i got to spew out and and poor pastor for getting that all dumped on him but i needed to spew out all the stuff i had been hiding in order to see my soul again Right. Cause I'd had it so masked under all that stuff I was doing. And uh and he sat patiently and listened and he was like, Whew, boy, you're in trouble. <laughs> and yep. I remember thinking, Yeah, you're a terrible counselor. Like I, <laughs> right. I didn't need you to tell me I'm in trouble. The the Federal Bureau of Investigation says I'm in trouble. I need you to tell me what I'm supposed to do now. And he was like, Where are you at with Jesus? And I remember like being floored, totally forgot I was in a pastor's office, right? Like and I just hung my head and, and I started crying and you know, I had all these memories flooding in of my days in the youth group. and All the things
0: you hear. Oh, and, yeah, and, and just
1: remembering you know the, the stories about Jesus. And, and I started crying and I said, I don't deserve Him, Pastor. Like, you heard. I just told you everything I've done. I don't deserve Him. And he said, neither do I. That's the beauty of grace. It's God's riches at Christ's expense. You don't deserve it and you didn't earn it. Neither do I. I remember being like, just kind of take him back. Like, this pastor just listened to all that and says that he doesn't deserve Jesus either. Like, he's not going to beat me down for this. He's not going to mm-hmm. keep me under his thumb. Like, this pastor's just like, yeah, God's here, you know? And I, I said, yeah, I don't know what to do, man. I don't, I don't think Jesus wants me, you know? And he said, man, let's, let's just pray. I think you've trusted him as your Savior. I don't think you've ever trusted him as your Lord. Let's, let's invite him in. You're 25 years old. Do you want him as your lord and i was like yeah this is my lordship in your office talking about suicide right Mm. so yeah he said let's pray and i said well will you pray because i don't think god wants to hear my voice and he said i still don't think you understand what grace is you know like but yeah i'll pray for you so we knelt down and uh and he prayed and i cried and i cried and i cried and it was like every i don't even remember the words he said but i just remember it was like just like healing to my soul and and a, and, a, and a dove didn't come out of heaven and land on my shoulder and tell me everything was going to be okay. But there was this inner peace. And when he said amen and I said amen, I said, Pastor, what's next? Like I got like this fire inside of me that feels like something needs to happen now. And he said, yeah, you need to get to know your Lord. And I said, well, how? And he said, read the Bible. And I was like, oh that book is boring, man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he was like, no, I think God did something to you today. And he gave me, a, I think it was an NLT version. Yep. He said, this is super easy reading, man. And uh, go home and, and start in the book of John. Yeah. So my wife would go to work. I'd lay my daughter down for a nap and I would read. And then my plan was I'll read a chapter then I'm going to go to sleep because I was so depressed that I just wanted to sleep. And I would lay my daughter down and I'd sit in the room with her and until she settled and I'd start reading. And before I knew it, two hours had passed and my daughter's waking up. And I was just a page turner, right? Like just okay. burning through scripture. Because every page I turned was these stories about Jesus just dealing with messed up people like me. Mm-hmm. And just the grace that he had towards them. And it was so many tears on that Bible and so many like the Bible started to read me moments. Where I'm reading this story, and then before I know it, I'm like, "Oh, that's me." You're okay. This is what it feels like to be spoken to by God. So there was like this this spiritual boot camp between you know February and August, and then August I find out that I'm going to get indicted, and uh, and I went to my pastor and I'm like, "Look, man, like this is the next step. I just need to own it. I need to just tell the truth and just get it all out there." Mm-hmm. And he goes, "Yeah." I feel you, but you can do that in a strategic way. Like get a lawyer and make sure that you're doing it the right way. Yeah. You know, don't just throw yourself at the feet of, of the Justice uh, Department. So, so I got a lawyer out of Grand Rapids, great guy, and uh, he just went to advocating for me. And uh, he told me the first time I sat down with him, he said, Andrew, if, if you are innocent, I will fight all the way to trial. But if there's any, sh- any shred of guilt in you, if you did anything at all wrong, let's start there. And I was like, dude, I'm guilty. I'm guilty as I'll get out, you know? And uh, so Mm -hmm. he he set it up with the FBI to sit down with them and to go through all my drug cases and to where I could pick out the good ones from the bad ones and, and tell them why they're good and why they're bad, you know? So the Jamel McGee one, you know, I open it up and in the opening paragraph it says, I pull up and I see him make a furtive gesture. I close it over and I say, that's a bad case. That's a bad case, I lied in my mind that was a good case cuz i found the dope and i was convinced it was yeah, him right. but now that i read it that was bad that was it was a lie so i went through these and and in the in that process over 60 people's convictions were overturned now that doesn't mean uh, that that was 60 people who didn't do anything. Yep. It was, you he know, a very complicated I reason. threw something in here yep. and there to make it a better case or whatever, or even to line my pockets. There was several guys where the story was I jumped out cause I knew he had a warrant. He took off running. I caught him. He had dope in his pocket. But the way I wrote it was a confidential informant told me where he was at so that I could pay the confidential informant. In reality, I was paying myself. Mm-hmm. You know, it was, it was just very convoluted, you know, all the things that I was doing. So there was all these cases that got, you know, overturned and dismissed. And then, um, and then I got indicted on my daughter's third birthday. I uh, had been working with the FBI since August. And then uh, December 1st, they called and said, we need you to come in for a polygraph test. And I said, look, it's my daughter's birthday. They said, it won't take that long. It'll be here maybe an hour and uh you believed him i did yeah uh. and i walked in and there was no polygraph machine and and it was my mentor the fbi agent who i had seen do dirty things which was one of the weird nuances of all of this is the guy investigating me is a guy who's taught me how to do some shady stuff mm-hmm. you know uh and he and i said what's up man he said hey the indictment came out last week but we didn't want to arrest you before thanksgiving We wanted to give you thanksgiving with your family um but we're gonna arrest you today.
0: So one of the things to kind of jump forward here. So when I watch part of your story, so I I watched the Dateline bit, um, the Steve Harvey show, different things like that. And so Jamal, you know, is this guy who, he's getting ready to meet his kid for the first time, Mm -hmm. right, a birthday party. That's when you roll up, you bounce him, he goes away to jail. So he doesn't really get to meet his son. Yeah. Okay. in jail for how many years so he ended up doing three years three out of the ten yeah okay wakes up one day thinking he's got seven days left and by the end of that day he was free okay yeah and um and so you're kind of you're you're living out your faith now being honest you know working through this process trying to you know you know just at least be honest right? right you know good start he gets released. And um, somehow, does he meet Jesus in prison, or, or or did he have a faith before he went to prison? And
1: Yeah, so he has a lot of parallels with our stories. Okay. Is uh, Grandma was a real strong influence in his life. Home life was pretty chaotic, but Grandma's house was a safe spot. Uh, had some church upbringing through that. Had accepted Jesus as a Savior as a teenager when he was going through some troubles. Um, and then like a lot of us, you know, lets Jesus go when you're out of the trouble. And then when you're in trouble again, you cry out to Jesus again. Mm -hmm. So he did a lot of that, uh, back and forth with Jesus stuff. And then, uh, the week before he was released, uh, he was holding on to so much pain from what I had done to him and God, he said it was almost like a song in his head that he just needed to let it go. And uh, and this was before Frozen, right? So. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, he said he wrestled with God for days and was like, "This is my pain. He did this to me. I, sh- I yeah. Don't, I don't have to let it go. I need to avenge myself." And said he finally did. He said, "That's it. I'm done. I let it go. It's over. I'm not gonna be mad at him anymore." And less than a week later, I he was released. You know. So right around the time that I was going through the court system, my my plea agreement. When I walked into court and pled guilty and then was taken into custody is the same week that he was wrestling with God on this. So, and obviously we don't know these two things. We, yep. I'm not writing him in prison. I forgot who he was, you know, and. Uh, so he gets released and then I, I ended up doing 18 months, uh, which is a whole nother conversation about white privilege and, and how the justice system cares for police officers. And I had the same exact charge that Jamel had, the same exact courtroom and the same exact I judge. I think you how the story ends. Right? 10 years for him, 18 months for me. Yep. Right? And I was guilty. And he fought it all the way to trial because he knew he was innocent. And because he took it to trial, the judge told him you've wasted the court's time. So I'm giving you the max penalty 10 years for his first ever drug offense. Jamel had never been caught with drugs before. He's never been caught with drugs after. He hates drugs. His dad was addicted for a while. His mom was addicted for a while, yep. right? But in, in the eyes of the system, my, my brother ends up with 10 years and I get 18 months. So then, fast forward to August uh, 2010, I get out and I'm on fire for Christ. You know, I just say I did 18 months of prison ministry, and I'm ready to hit the ground running. Uh, and then it was about another year after that, uh, my church was doing an event in Broadway Park, which is in Benton Harbor, and I'm standing in this uh, in this park, and there's a basketball tournament going on. There's you know a hot dog cookout, uh, kids are getting their faces painted, yep. hundreds of people Carnival in this park. Kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah, cool. And uh, I'm sitting under a pavilion and I see this man start walking at me. Uh, not to me, not towards me, but at me. Like he was yeah. parting the crowd to get to me. And I, I looked at him, I said, oh, I know that guy. I sent him to prison, what's his name? And right before he got to me, I said, that's Jamel McGee. And he reached out his hand. He said, you remember me? And I had come to that park that day knowing I'm gonna run into people who I wronged and it's my chance to apologize to them. So I thought like, hey, God's answering prayers. Here's this guy, you know, reaching out his hand. You know? So I reach out and I grab his hand and he squeezed on extremely tight to the point where I thought he was gonna break my hand. And he said, uh, I want you to tell my son why he missed out on years of his daddy's life. And Jakarius is standing right there. Yeah. And, you know, I'm like, what do I say to this guy, you know? So I just started apologizing. I said, there's nothing I can do to give you your time back. I messed up. I was a messed up human being. Uh, Some things that I kind of rehearsed, what would I say to people, you know? And he didn't say anything. He just kept gripping my hand. I was like, all right, well, I'm going to tell him about Jesus since he's not going to let me go. I said, look, man, I'm a new creation in Christ. Uh, I'm mad at that old man, too. Like, he threw away his family. He threw away his career. Like, uh, I'm so sorry for those things I did to you. And still, he didn't say anything, you know? I'm like, man, this is a tough crowd. I said, okay. Uh, And my daughter was running around the park somewhere, and I said, you know what? I know what it's like being away from your kid because I was away from my daughter for 18 months. And that was so dumb. Like, everything I had just built between us, I tore it right back away. (laughs) I I held up a sign in his face that said, you know, all lives matter, Jamal. You got pain. I've got pain. I got over mine. You should get over yours. And that's not what I meant, but that's how he took it, right? Like... I put my 18 months up against his three years. I put my guilt up against his innocence. innocence. And I just said, get over it basically. And he spoke then, you know, he told me, uh, he, he told me off and, uh, and he let me go and he walked away. And I was like, well, there goes that opportunity. I messed up, you know, I, yep. I wanted to be reconciled with people. And then four years later, I was working at a nonprofit and uh, I, I ran a cafe And uh, we were a social enterprise that helped people get on their feet. So whether you've never had a job before and you want to build a resume or you're getting out of prison and you need some space between prison and the next job. So everybody would go through this thing called Jobs for Life. And when they would graduate, they would get a mentor and a a potential job with us. And the, the person running Jobs for Life said, hey, there's this guy named Zuki who's in my class. And I think you need to be his mentor. Like God has just laid it on my heart that you're the only one to mentor him. And, uh, and I don't remember Zuki right. at this point. It's been so many years. And I said, well, you know, it's a small city. Um, I don't know that I know him, but I may have affected his family. You know, may, you got to talk to him about it. So she goes across the street to where the class is being held. and She's like, hey, Jamel, there's this guy. We got him as your mentor, but he was a police officer and he's done some awful things. And Jamel's like, well, who is it? said, Andrew Collins. And he goes, no, just walks away. <laughs> and he, he told me, he's like, I was waiting for like the punked crew to jump right, out yeah. with the cameras. like, just kidding. And then he sat down and he said, but I thought about it. I'm like, well, these people don't know my story. I haven't shared anything about that. And he said, so I prayed. And uh, when I opened my eyes, there was this uh, image on, on the book that he had that was uh, an illustration of somebody on top of a mountain reaching back and helping somebody else back up. And at that point, Jamel was homeless and living out of his brother's car and just really down on his luck. And uh, he's like, okay, this is a sign from God. Like, for whatever reason, I think God wants us to do this. So he said, you know what? I'll take him as my mentor. So she's like, all right, he's ready right now. And Jamel's like, well, I don't know about right now, you know, and like just how God will push you sometimes. So Mm. it's an hour and a half later. I'm doing my thing at the cafe, and he comes in. I uh, sit down with him, I said, hey man, I used to be a police officer, I used to do some awful things in the city, if I've ever harmed you or your family, I'd love to talk about it so that I can apologize, and he's kind of looking at me like I'm crazy, and I said, okay, what's so funny, like you're looking at me like I'm crazy, he said, hey, we already had this talk, I said, we did, and he said, Broadway Park, and as soon as he said Broadway Park, I was brought back to that guy gripping my hand, right? I'm thinking, oh man, this guy came back to like finish the job, right? Right. Like, but also, it felt like God prompted me, like, "Hey, I'm giving you another chance to apologize." Right. Yes. Yeah. So don't. Be, yeah. Try not
0: to screw this one so up. So I was like, Jamel,
1: hey, I need you to know how sorry I am. And he was like waving me off, like leaning, like we were sitting like this in two chairs, and he was like leaning away from me. He said, "It's all good, man. God made that good." I said, "No, but I don't think you understand how sorry." He said, "I understand. I believed you that day that you were sorry. I just wasn't ready to accept it." Oh, wow. And I said, Jamel, can we do this mentor-mentee thing? He said, I think God wants us to. And I said, can we pray together? Because this is is heavy. And he said, let's pray. So we prayed that God would bless our friendship and bless the mentorship. And we said amen, and he walked away. And I walked in the back room and started bawling. Uh, Because it was like the day in the pastor's office where I felt like Jesus had truly forgiven me for what I had done. Like Jamel, in so many ways, has been... um, Jesus in the flesh to me, where this man has no reason to forgive me. He has nothing to gain from it, um, except for he knows that God told him he had to let it go. And out of nowhere, here we are in each other's lives again. So a week later, we needed a employee and Jamel needed a job. And so, uh, you know, we end up hiring him at the cafe, and we get down to the end of the day, and I say, man, you're such a hard worker, thank you for all your help, uh, do you wanna punch me? Uh, you know, because right. I, I still felt like it's gotta be coming, right? Yeah. Like, I'm gonna be with a customer serving a latte, and I'm just gonna catch one to the back right, of the head, yeah. like, I just wanna know what's coming, bro. Right. And he'd smile, and if you ever meet Jamel, like, his smile is just so amazing, it just lights up a room, he's like, no, bro, it's all good, it's all good. So it was probably about four months later, um, Uh, a newspaper writer locally came in and she had just written a story about some people who were suing the city because of my cases. Now we're probably seven, eight years moved on. Right, but this is how long. And I'm thinking, why why am I still on the front page? It was a Saturday morning, I walk in to get some gas and I look over and I see my name on the front page. I'm like, this is frustrating. How long am I gonna have to do this? I was lamenting to my boss and he's like, well, you know she comes in for coffee all the time. So the next week where me and my boss are chatting, he's like, there she is, there she is. And uh, I had no clue what he was talking about. And she orders something, and, and he says, uh, oh, that was a nice article in the paper on Saturday. And then I'm like, oh, this is who it is. Yeah. And she was looking at him. She's like, which article was that? And I said, hi, my name's Andrew Collins. And she turned red, and she's like, they make me write those articles. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and I said, no, 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 I'm not mad, you know. And she said, actually, we were talking about it, and we'd like to... We'd like to write a story about like where you're at now. We were wondering what you're up right. to. And I said, well, that's a cool story. Like God's done a lot of things, but I think there's a better story. And I start telling her about Jamel and I. And she's like, no, shut up. That didn't really happen. And I'm like, Jamel. And he comes out of the kitchen. And he's like, what's up? I said, how did me and you meet? He goes, oh, you sent me to prison. And she was like oh, i got to write this article, you know? Okay, and then that gets picked up. Yeah, so then that's how everything happened with that. Okay. So,
0: yeah. You know, and it's interesting, just a couple things that I hear. First of all, you're like, you're frustrated. How long is this going to go on? It's like, you know, you ruin multiple people's lives. Like, I know. You know, and it's just, again, that's who's in us, right? Yeah. Like, how long do I have to deal with this? I mean, right. I only put X amount of people in prison who didn't deserve it. Right. you know, innocent, and like those things. and I, And I think that's that's our that's my story too it, it, it's like you know and, and our joe talked about this today he talked about the, you know jesus forgives but there's consequences that's right right and so here you are you're just living out the consequences and, I, and i'm sure every time you're you're dealing with that you're probably you know it's a good reminder that's like, yeah, this has been made right in god's eyes but i gotta live this out that's now. right that's know, right. Own it, you know, just like the reporter who even I didn't want to write <laughs> like right. no one wants to own the things that we do that cause stress in other people's lives or tension. But, you know, and, you know, when you are your pastor's office and you're kneeling and you're like, you know, God doesn't want to hear from me. I instantly thought of Andrew, the little boy and going, hmm. you keep that one, you know, just hmm. this. This thing that Mm. you're experiencing and all of us experience probably, which is this idea that it's like, you know, when you don't know you're God's kid,
1: Mm.
0: you know, and you can't trust that. It's like, you, you, guy wants to come in and pick us up in our mess, you know, and and no matter how dirty we are, he's going to grab us because we're his kids, but we're like, no, no, we're not. And so just it's interesting how that, that continually gets played out in our lives. So,
1: And as a father... You know, if we have fathers listening, like you're not going to be perfect, but like the image that your children have of the heavenly father comes a lot from who you are to them, you know, and uh, that's a heavy burden to carry. But God gifted us with that. Yep. Yeah, I had a biological father who I met when I was 12, who, you know, after a year of getting to know him, said, I don't think you're mine. And then, you know, you've heard the story of the guy who raised me. So, you know, there's a lot of father wounds inside of me. Mm -hmm. And that's, I truly believe why I struggle with grace and I struggle with shame is because I never had a male figure who would say, yeah, you messed up, but it's not who you are. Right. You messed up, but you're not a bad person.
0: Yeah. You're worthy to be loved. Um, so we you need don't to wait, do that. And I'll, I'll move on after this because I think Corey's going to get bored or whatever. <laughs> but I remember um, the thing that turned it around for me one of the things that I heard a guy was uh, speaking at a camp. And so who knows if it's true or not, right? You know, but, anyways, he was talking about he's got a twin brother and they went camping at some campground. And that was the olden days where they used to have troughs, right, for urinals. You know, so you go up to like a, a trough on a wall. Well, him and his brother went in there unsupervised and they thought it was something to play in. And so they jump in and they're splashing around in the mm. in this thing. And then dad comes in and sees them in this urine, you know, filled trough or whatever, and they're like four, doesn't know. And he goes, And our dad reached in and grabbed us and took us out. Mm. And he's like, and that's God. Yeah. He sees our sin, he sees who we are, and he just reaches in and he and mm. he takes us full. A yeah. master right how then, we are right right and and so that's always been so helpful for me like you know when i'm in that dark place and i'm thinking about all the horrible things that i've done and you know and the things i can't comprehend of how it's impacted people and those things it's like yeah but god's reaching in right now yeah and we're good and so now you so now we one of the things you're trying to do is um you guys share your story you you talk about that and um, you're obviously not a cop anymore, right? right? So yeah. what are you doing to, like, make money? Yeah, so
1: I work for a ministry called Young Life, okay. so youth ministry. Yeah, so, rock on, uh, Freebird. Yeah. That's yeah, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I've got a high school and a middle school that I'm uh, in charge of, so I build teams of adults who go into the worlds of kids. So it's, uh, it's fun work. So, okay. And then Jamel and I wrote a book together, and we travel He's and did. we speak.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So... Yeah, so it's 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 a lot of fun. So. Okay, great. And um, for the people who you know, to kind of like wrap up here, let's talk about this confession thing. Hmm. You said it was a weight coming off of you. Hmm. Okay. Um, God, did you? God did a lot of things probably to get you to that point, right? When you you broke. Hmm. Um, after that how did it change how you interacted with god and um once you started confessing to him, what 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 happened in your faith life obviously the word became alive to it you became alive to the the bible right um but like how did that confession moment change your trajectory if it did or not
1: yeah i mean it changed uh it changed the people i hung out with right hmm. like i started surrounding myself with people from that church Uh, People who are moving in the same direction, you know, a lot of times police officers only hang out with police officers because uh, there's a truth that nobody in the world can understand the things that you have to go through except for another police officer And I think the same is true for for the Christian walk is if you aren't pulling back at least sometimes and being with like-minded people who love Jesus and and want to live their lives like his son or like like God's son Uh, that's tough. You know, if you're trying to go out there and and be a loner, you know, so it changed who I hung out with. It changed, my tongue was something that almost immediately changed. Oh, really? Yeah, I mean, uh, I used to not be able to finish a sentence without the F-bomb, and it was almost like immediately my soul was sensitive towards that. I started crying a lot, you i know. hadn't cried in a long time and but it's so good for you now it was like every every sermon was you know <laughs> direct mail to me you know yeah. and, and i see that now with younger christians that god will pursue you but god won't continue pursuing you like that because then you start to idolize the sermons or you start to idolize the pastor who's given the sermons mm. and god's like hey i'm not this one thing that you're experiencing me i'm also over here as well i'm also out in the woods and, and, and you hear a bird chirp and it brings joy to your soul that that bird is doing what it was meant to do, what it was created to do. Like, like I'm not just in the sermon, right? Yeah. Like, when we start to idolize that stuff, God will, I believe, pull back from it and all of a sudden, you don't feel as special to God, like like our
0: preaching's pretty subpar
1: here, so there's no idolization going Are you the on. preacher?
0: No, oh. it, no, no, I was gonna say I could believe it, yeah, yeah, no, yeah, no it, this crap show no. that I'm running, yeah, no, and so, and that that's a great a great point to hear that God's in all these different things, so. Yeah. All right, well, I'm very much looking forward to uh, us packing out this brewery tonight and a bunch yeah. of men here in a real story. So thank you so much for your time. And um, for having me. I yeah, really appreciate you coming on here. Yeah. So I guess I could say that I'm glad I heard that. And um, again, if you could, just make sure to subscribe on our YouTube channel, hit our like button, and then also the uh, long form is available on our po- on our podcast platform. Just search for I'm glad I heard that. And you may have heard The Gather podcast is now joined up with the I'm Glad I Heard That. And so myself, Autumn, and Eric will definitely be curating a lot more uh, content for you guys and putting it out there So, so many people can hear these great stories. Andrew, thank you so much.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.